So what's the occasion? Come on, let me see. Let me see. Come on, open it. God, you're going to love this. Oh, I hope you like it. It's a suit. Right, a suit. You hate it, don't you? No, but I could learn to. You could learn to like it, too. Besides, you can't dress like that in America. Another good reason not to go to America, huh? Huh? Oh, no. You're not suckering me into that argument again. I'm not getting married here and spending my honeymoon swinging from vines and checking the bed for snakes. Those weren't the only things I had planned. I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding and appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, well, thank you so much for joining us. This isn't your standard film review. Rather, it's sort of a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection. With some background thrown in on the actors, information on the director, and hey, if I'm doing my job, perhaps you'll get a half-amusing story out of me. Fair be warned, we don't cover all aspects of plot, but we do discuss endings and spoilers. So if you'd like to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and hey, I would hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend, give us a favorable review, and subscribe. Our season-long theme, The Summer of Canon, it just keeps chugging along. And this week, the LSCE preps to have some real serialized adventure as we screen Gary Nelson's 1987 cult classic sequel, Alan Quatermain and the Lost City of Gold. Join us! Hey look, I'll freely admit this. I know I sound like a broken record here. I've come to terms with this fact. I sleep at night now, it's okay. Frankly, it comes with the territory. But I gotta tell you this, when I was growing up, cult and B-movies, that was the bread and butter staple for local UHF stations, because they had nothing else to play. So they put them on to regularly fill the time blocks on your typical Saturday afternoon. So once again, this is going to be one of those stories in you know, cue broken record time, that takes place on a rainy Saturday afternoon sometime in July of 1993, when, of all places, I was up at Rib Lake, Wisconsin, visiting my maternal grandparents. I had the house pretty much to myself on this day, if I'm recalling correctly. My mom had taken my grandmother and my kid sister out to go antiquing. My dad and my younger brother had gone to check minnow traps with my grandfather and my great-great-uncle Gene. So that really left me holding down the fort, manning the dining room table, watching whatever came on the little TV that was there, doodling. Which, for me, you may as well have told people I was attending church. Because, honestly, today, that's one of my favorite ways to zen out. You just sit with a pad of paper, you draw some kind of goofy stuff, and you watch things. 
I got to see a crazy double feature that afternoon. It started with 1972's made-for-TV film by CBS, Gargoyles, with the great Bernie Casey, Cornell Wilde, and a very, very young Scott Glenn. That was a lot of fun, and then, as a palate cleanser, I got this week's offering. I knew then, as I was watching it, it wasn't necessarily good. I mean, at this point in time, I had seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, I had seen Indiana Jones, so I thought the film was just so fun and so brazenly odd. I really got a heck of a lot of enjoyment out of it. By the time it was wrapping up, the family had come back to the house, and we were all starting to have to clean up to go out to our... Well, whenever we'd go up to visit in Wisconsin, we'd have to have a one night of a fancy dinner, and that was almost always exclusively held at the Highview restaurant. But I spent the rest of that afternoon talking to my folks about the fun of the movie I just got to watch. I would later end up renting the movie again a few months down the line, insisting this time that my cousins watch it with me, which they did as good sports, not quite under protest, but with much less enthusiasm. Although I'll give him credit, my younger cousin Michael turned to me when it was over and he gave me sort of the best answer that he could muster, which was, eh, it was alright. Honestly, he was being kind. Look, I'll tell you this, I love this week's film for many a nostalgic reason, but between it and its predecessor, they're straight up shameless ripoffs of the Indiana Jones films, all made with an attempt to buy into a cheap cash grab that would become their sort of low budget adventure outings. But with the Cannon Boys turning to a serialized fictional character who got his start in the late 1900s, they selected this sort of, well, really out of sync character with everything that was going on in the day because Alan Quatermain was a swashbuckling English-born great white hunter from Africa. And he's not exactly somebody that just leaps out to modern audiences. As a literary character, Quatermain should have had a lot going on for him when it came to big screen translations. He was created by writer H. Ryder Haggard in the mid-1880s, and the stories and novels about Quatermain and his adventures would continue going forward up until Haggard's death in 1925, with two more stories actually being published posthumously, both in 1926 and 1927 respectively. Quatermain was an Englishman whose father was a missionary and made a life for himself, becoming a renowned game hunter and fortune seeker in South Africa, and his adventures would go on to serve as fodder for many a film. Starting in 1919 in a silent film, and then having multiple adaptations of his adventures for searching for King Solomon's Mines, the latter of which in 1950 inspired a young George Lucas to create his own character, Indiana Jones, in the mold of Alan Quatermain, which is somewhat ironic as in the 80s, remakes like this were trying to exploit and tap into the very sort of adventure tale that Indiana Jones had inspired. Aside from this obvious turducken of inspiration, or Russian nesting doll, take your pick, there was another aspect that made Quatermain such an attractive character for the Go-Go Boys of canon to build a film series around. Well, quite frankly, he was in the public domain, so he wouldn't cost them a dime. 
with Spielberg's Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and then Robert Zemeckis's hit with Romancing the Stone making a mint at the box office, this was, at least to Menahem Golan, Cannon's chance to come up with their own version of an iconic swashbuckler of their own, something they could really build a series and an industry around. This was going to be a gamble that they would play out to the hilt. They would make not one, but two pictures back to back because they were so sure that they could sell this franchise both domestically and internationally that they budgeted extra money, stuff again that was away from the canon model. And instead of making a smaller movie for four or five million dollars, they shelled out an estimated 12 million dollars for the first film, which was an adaptation of King Solomon's Mines, and then they would spend an additional 13 on the sequel, this week's film. They wanted a big name that they could cast as their star, as their leading man, who could embody this classic character of English pulp lit. But who could fill the shoes of this character that was described as being short, dark, underweight, an unkempt master who spent his time in the African bush? Well, why not instead get the opposite? a tall, good-looking, blonde actor in the way of Richard Chamberlain, TV favorite from things like The Thorn Birds and Dr. Kildare, and of course, the miniseries Shogun, not to mention his groundbreaking roles in films like 1974's The Towering Inferno or 1977's The Last Wave. He was sophisticated, he was glib, and he would be, in their eyes, perfect as the part of the wise-cracking adventurer. So, you need a foil here, and also a romantic lead. Who could be the plucky, sexy foil to put up against such a leading man? Well, if you were ever to hear Menahem Golan tell it, or some of the other people who worked on Canon's staff, they would joke around that uh, Golan himself had kept insisting that we should get that stone woman, referring to Kathleen Turner, star of Robert Zemeckis' Romancing the Stone. Well, as the story goes, the casting department didn't understand him, so they cast the still fairly unknown Sharon Stone, whose claim to fame at the time was showing up as the pretty girl on the train in Woody Allen's Stardust Memories and starring opposite of Ernest Borgnine in the 1981 Wes Craven thriller Deadly Blessing. Good story, right? Well, unfortunately, it's not true. Nobody was like, what the hell is Sharon Stone doing here? As cute as it would be to say that Stone's casting was a complete misunderstanding, in reality, Kathleen Turner was offered the role, but she flatly turned it down because she had, well, ethics and scruples, making note that, well, this is a ripoff of the movie I just had success with, why would I do that? And that forced the good folks at Canon to cast Sharon Stone in the role of anthropologist Jesse Houston. What could possibly go wrong? Well, for starters, Chamberlain and Stone fought like cats and dogs throughout the entirety of this shoot. And since both films were getting done back to back, that meant they got to spend nine full months hanging out in Africa together, getting to spend time pretending to be in love while bitterly hating to be around each other every waking moment of the day. Always classy, Chamberlain, even back in the day, would say good things about his co-star in interviews. But as the years went on and time rolled forward, he would still find classy ways to sum up his disappointment with their working relationship. In 2014, during an interview with director Mark Hartley, Chamberlain offered up that 
Sharon Stone is a beautiful woman, a smart woman, and one who wants you to know that fact at all times. Stone, on her part, was actually a nightmare for the rest of the cast and crew to work with on both films. And for her time, which was almost a full year spent in Africa, it was rumored, and I stress rumored, that some of the crew took great delight in urinating in the actress's, quote, skin-rejuvenating milk baths that she demanded to have on set. During the shooting of promotional materials, Stone had a leopard cub that she had gotten supposedly very close with and wanted to use for pictures multiple times. Well, that's great when you're shooting on set for the film, but when you go to do promotional shoots, which happen after the film's done, the cub has grown. And by the time Stone got around to doing the promo shots, the cub had doubled in size. And when it became spooked by the lights and the cameras, it rewarded the difficult actress with, well, as Preview Magazine had quoted, a bite on some of her more prominent features. For the first film, Cannon had hired standby director J. Lee Thompson to oversee the low-budget update of King Solomon's Mines, going out of their way to cast John Rhys Davis to play the very un-PC Turkish slaver Dogati, cementing the connection to the Indiana Jones franchise and giving viewers a rather silly adventure film about a lost diamond mine in Africa that was sought by both the German army and an African slaver during the day. Was it a good first offering? Well, I'm a fan, and I would have to say, well, no, it's not. But it is a lot of fun. And the audiences would shell out for tickets, making King Solomon's Mines a minor hit for Canon in 1985, earning them $15 million at the box office against their $12 million budget. Although it was heavily pilloried by the critics for having some wildly outdated depictions of ethnic stereotypes, bad special effects, and even questionable performances, still people lined up to see it. Needing an immediate sequel, Canon had writer Gene Quintano crank out another screenplay with writer Lee Reynolds to continue the further adventures of Alan Quatermain. Now, lest anyone think that this itself was an original adaptation, no, no, this is a straight-up remake of a different bad but equally fun B-film, King Solomon's Treasure, that was made in 1979, with David McCallum of The Man from Uncle fame, John Kolakos, and, of course, the best part of the film as far as I'm concerned, the gorgeous Britt Eklund, showing up as Queen Nephthepta. So... Smarter people would warn you off, but hey, I say treat yourself. Have some fun. Go see that one, too. Quatermain would be retooled a little here. I mean, honestly, they really sort of gave him an Indiana Jones light update for this outing. In the first film, Chamberlain is decked out in nothing but khaki. He's sporting this cool leopard-banded fedora, and he's wearing a sawed-off shotgun by his side. That look would all get updated to lose the boomstick and place our hero in sort of a more drab set of olive fatigues. Even shooting and ultimately not using footage that featured him using a bullwhip to fight a bunch of angry people. Production started two weeks after the first film had wrapped, and this time they had headed off with $13 million in the budget, and they'd switched directors. J. Lee Thompson had gone on to film Murphy's Law with Charles Bronson 
for canon. So that left this movie being taken care of by Gary Nelson, who was coming on board to take over for the sequel. And he was really keen on emphasizing less of the action and more on some of the stunts and special effects. He wanted to be sophisticated with it, wanted to build character. And in interviews, he would tout the use of matte shots and miniatures for this picture, which is kind of funny because, yeah, there are matte shots and, yes, there are miniatures, but they don't look very good. Still, some creative casting was done to provide some real theatrics for us. For casting, joining our heroes, we have the amazing James Earl Jones playing the role of the warrior king Umslopagus with his chrome-headed axe and his regal leopard skin mix of suit coat. He is an intimidating figure and is a lot of fun for James Earl Jones to walk around and choose some scenery when he is allowed to talk. See that caveat later. Now, we also have the fabulous Robert Donner here. You might remember we talked about him. He is the classic actor Exidor from Mork and Mindy. Here he shows up as the greedy and dishonest holy man, Swarma. Making things all the more interesting, canon cast character actor Martin Rabbit as Robeson Quartermain, our main character's younger brother. Although he was not out openly at the time, Chamberlain himself is gay, was actually in a relationship with Rabat since 1977, and that partnership lasted up until about 2010 when he amicably ended their relationship. So it makes for kind of an interesting thing to know the two were dating while they were on set together here in Africa. For our villains, we have the great character actor Henry Silva showing up as the high priest Aegon, while his willing thrall showing up as Queen Sorias, portrayed by Scream Queen Elvira herself, Cassandra Peterson, does a really good job at looking beautiful and menacing, but not really having to speak at all. To fill in for the role of good queen, we have Eileen Marson taking up the role of Naleptha, the lost city of gold's caretaking conscious ruler. Originally, it was slated to have shooting get completed in 12 weeks, but the film was shot on location in Zimbabwe starting in June of 1985 right along the border with Zambia, mainly to take advantage of the great views that they had of Victoria Falls. But there's a problem. When you're shooting on location, you see, the Go-Go Boys famously, for multiple pictures, would tout just how marvelous and cheap it was to shoot in Africa. How they could get away with paying the locals next to nothing, and they could get a lot of bang for their buck in the Dark Continent. But in reality, it was no easy task. Because as a director, Nelson had to deal with some very real frustrations, like having bull elephants trample through the mocked-up village sets. Plus, he had to deal with the fact that the region was experiencing a drought. Once that ended, torrential seasonal rains came in ahead of schedule, which ended up costing production another four weeks of shooting. For the City of Gold, well... They needed to build something, so what they did was they found the bones of a ruined hotel that was on the banks of the Zambezi River that had been mostly destroyed by a missile attack brought on by revolutionaries during that country's war for independence. That retrofitted hotel became the City of Gold. Chamberlain himself would go on to remain 
courteous and complimentary with interviews, talking about his love of Africa, his admiration for his co-star, at least until the years would roll by and he revealed how much he just disliked being around Stone. Stone, in the day, complained in very real time about hating being in Africa, how she hated roughing it on location, and how much she disliked all of the cast and crew. The music for The City of Gold was going to be a recycled bit of music that came from the original score that Jerry Goldsmith had written for the first film, which, yes, saved the Go-Go Boys a bit of money, but it made for a really frustrating offering because almost every bit of music is the theme music. Nelson had so many frustrations on this movie, and they didn't end when shooting ends. You see, he had to go back and sit down with Golan and argue with his producer when he accused the director of bringing him a story that was, quote, unreleasable. Nelson, to his credit, shot back, Manaham, I just walked into this office past a hallway full of posters of other movies that you made before this one that were equally unreleasable. After a bit of arguing and digging, Nelson then learned that the producer himself had gotten mixed up. He had wandered into an early screening of Invaders from Mars rather than The Lost City of Gold, and he was very confused as to what he was seeing. Thus, he thought Nelson had provided him something that was not up to snuff for the big screen. So, yeah, while that does explain some confusion with the story itself, that's more illuminating to the mindset of Golan, because he's funding the creation of such content that he himself just can't keep all of it straight. This is what happens when you try to put out 50 movies in a given year. And that's not a great sign when you're spending millions of dollars for each of those throws. Now, honestly, I could say more, but folks, truly, you've been ever so patient sitting here and listening to my claptrap yammering. How about I shut up and we get to that trailer? What do you say? Alan Quartermain, the master of adventure, has teamed up with the most unlikely partner. Eric is about 6,000 miles that way. To pursue the dream of a lifetime. It's dangerous and it's crazy. And it's what I've got to do. Go on the streets of it. They're searching for the long lost treasure of an ancient civilization. by a mad tyrant and his ruthless warriors. The odds are against them, and that's the way they like it. Richard Chamberlain, Sharon Stone, and James Earl Jones in the adventure movie of the year, Alan Quartermain and the Lost City of Gold. We open on a man, Dumont, as played by Rory Kalele, who is desperately being hunted through the jungle by two hooded assassins who are brandishing gurky knives. He ends up stumbling feverishly onto a fabulous plantation compound that is owned by the renowned explorer and hunter Alan Quatermain, as played by Richard Chamberlain, where he lives with his fiancée, Jessie Houston, as played by Sharon Stone. Recognizing his long-lost friend, Quatermain quickly gives chase while ordering his house staff and Jesse to tend to DeMont, ending up engaging in a fight with one of the assassins that leaves his newly purchased suit in tatters. While he manages to chase the men off, he does recover both a coin, 
and a blade. His sick friend ends up spinning him a tale, stating that he, with some friends and Quartermain's own younger brother, Robeson, embarked on a journey to discover the lost city of gold, and indeed they did find it. But he begs his friend to lend him help, requesting that he consult with the holy man Swarma to get further answers, unable to stay conscious long enough to tell Alan if his brother is indeed alive or dead. I'm sure after he gets some rest, he'll be able to tell you about your brother. Those men he was muttering about, Hudson and Tremont, who are they? Old friends. They thought about adventure first and the danger second. Always ready to go out at the drop of a legend. Apparently they left while we were at King Solomon's mines. They were searching for a great lost city, a lost white race. My brother pestered me about it for years. It was a crazy idea, I told him. Too damn dangerous chasing after just another improbable African myth. I guess he got tired of pestering me. Do you think he found it? They found something or something found them. You're the resident archaeologist. What do you make of this? It's gold. Possibly commemorative. The inscription here, it, it looks Phoenician or, or variation. Phoenician? I've never seen anything quite like it. Where'd you get it? It was in Dumont's things. This knife. What do you think? Very strange. Sun symbol is definitely Egyptian. But the graphics are Phoenician. And the detail is very advanced. It just doesn't make any sense. The man who attacked me wore a band with this symbol on it. I found something. During the night, the assassins return and strangle Dumont to death with his own bed's mosquito netting, forcing Quatermain to go to the local city to seek out Swarma for information. There he encounters a trader, Stuart Gokes, who sells him a metallic undershirt that promises to deflect edged weapons and who points him towards the supposed holy man. Swarma, as played by Robert Donner, is for his part a money-hungry flimflam artist who survives by taking money from the foolish and who acts as an information broker in the city. Swarma ends up confirming with Quartermain that yes, he did indeed advise his friends and his younger brother to go and seek out the legends surrounding the fabled lost city of gold, but he is stunned to learn that they made it back, practically salivating when he sees that Quartermain is holding a gold coin as proof from the city itself. Needing to find his brother, Quartermain tells Jesse that he's going to delay their wedding, in order to find his family members, attempting to put together an expedition to make the journey. While initially angry, Jesse ends up going along with him on the quest. That, and they pick up an old friend, an axe-wielding warrior, Umslopogus, as played by James Earl Jones, who brings along with him five Ascari warriors who can help on their journey. 
Swarma, eager to get his hands on the treasure himself, opts to join them too, claiming they're going to need his help to interpret the legends to get to the fabled lost city. As they travel east, they cross a desert and then make their way to the walled path of Japora, where, due to Swarma's greed, he ends up setting off a booby trap that kills two of the Skari warriors and ends up revealing that Quatermain's friend Hudson had died there previously. They end up traveling by canoe on the river, where they have to contend with Ashawe warriors who demand that Jesse be given as payment for use of the waterway. Quartermain refuses, and later they are attacked at night by the Ashawa, who end up murdering another Askari warrior and attempt to block the group's attempt to go on, only to be turned away when Quartermain's metallic undershirt ends up deflecting a thrown spear, making the tribe believe him to be a god and causing them to flee, letting the adventures continue on. The river puts them through a series of underground caves and has the group traveling through a hot spring and ultimately past a flaming geyser that is dubbed the Devil's Heart. That ultimately ends up killing the remaining Ascari warrior, and Quartermain has to douse the flame himself by sinking a stalagmite into it. Quartermain's friends exit the cave system, and they encounter the dead body of yet another one of his companions and they're forced to fight some very rubbery-looking snake monsters before grappling with a male lion. They end up exiting to the most beautiful of vistas, one that looks over a waterfall, a river of lava, and ultimately the fabled lost city of gold itself. As they approach, they end up rescuing a young boy from being killed by yet another lion, with Umslopagus wrestling the beast down to the ground with his bare hands before Quatermain ends up shooting it. As they are welcomed as honored guest, Quatermain is thrilled to note that his brother, Robeson, as played by Martin Rabbit, is safe and well. Unfortunately, the reunion is short-lived as the high priest Aegon, as played by Henry Silva, enters and is upset that they've killed a sacred beast. And after gathering the two queens of the city, Sarias, as played by Cassandra Peterson, and Naleptha, as played by Eileen Marson, he demands that one of their party must atone and offer their life in place of the magnificent animal. I'm wary of people ruled by women, or like women, and they quickly change from friend to foe. Careful. I taught my left on egg on English. Which one of you is going to die for slaying our sacred beast? Me? I am like the venerable Egon, a priest, a man who respects the beliefs of others. I admire the venerable. By all that is holy, someone has sought to mock me. It was the savage. Believe me, she hid these things in my garments to make me the fool. You need no help from me to be the fool. And I will spit your venerable head if you speak more of sacrifice.
Aegon tires of talking, and he instead attempts to just drop Jesse into a molten pit of gold. But Alan ends up shooting a guard, which generates a new sacrifice, and thus it forces Aegon to stop. Frustrated and angry, Aegon ends up hurling a spear directly at Quatermain, but the metallic shirt ends up blocking it, and again, it makes all those in attendance start to doubt the power of the High Priest, and to think that Quatermain himself is a god. They start turning to Quatermain for answers, leaving Aegon angry. Apparently, this outsider is interrupting his rule. Quatermain ends up touring the city with his brother, and he gets to know, basically, the general scoop on Aegon and his followers and how all of this came to be. This was like paradise until Aegon showed up. He was a slave trader from the far north, selling arms to the Ashawi. They brought him here. From slave trader to high priest? How'd he do it? By preying on the fears of the people, he's created a cult of lion gods, slavery, human sacrifice. What about the gold? Aegon's using the Ashawi to smuggle it. The main smelter's deep underground. The punishment for going near it is death. Robeson, why don't you leave this place with us? I'm in love with the people here. And the left is an enemy? She fights him. Aristima. That means welcome in our language. Thank you, Majesty. Knowing that he has to get rid of these outside threats, Aegon ends up grabbing Shwarma, along with Sorias, and he pumps the holy man for information, offering him all the gold he could want in exchange for information on Quatermain proper, which Swarma is all too happy to give. Out of the hills, the city ends up being visited by a barbarian slave trader and Aegon's business partner, Nasta, as played by Larby Dogmi who attempts to intimidate Quatermain with displays of strength. Quatermain ends up wowing the residents of the city yet again, using dynamite to make it appear that he has the ability to will a marble bench to explode, which elicits cheers from the citizens and terrifies his opponents. Nalepta asks him then to come forward and destroy the sacrificial table, as Aegon has told all of the populace that only a god could do so. Quatermain has Umslopagus destroy the table using the leverage of his own axe, thus declaring that the city will be free of any more terror and death. Angered, Aegon end up leaving the city to raise an army and take it back by force, having Swarma remove Quatermain's metallic shirt and his pistol to use against him. Allying with the Ashawi, Aegon lays siege to the city, but Quatermain and his friends end up having a few tricks up their sleeves, arming the citizens with gold weapons and forcing them to man the barracks, fighting for their lives and doing heavy damage to Aegon's forces as they try to enter in. As Quatermain orders the people to fall back, he begs Umslopagus the use of his axe, allowing it to be struck by lightning before he embeds it into the metal lion's head that tops the city proper. And he uses that superheated metal to melt the gold down and to slake it across the heads of his own attackers, ultimately coating Aegon himself and routing the forces of evil. Jesse, for her part, attempts to save Nalepta from her treacherous sister, a confrontation that ends with Sorias 
falling to her death into a liquid gold facility underneath the palace. The people are now freed and are put under the calm and just rule of Nelepta, with Robeson, who has seemingly fallen in love with the queen, opting to stay on board to, quote, help, while Quatermain smiles. Having happily saved the day, he assures Jesse that they can put their adventuring well behind them and embark on their future together. Kissing as the credits roll. Good lord, where do we even begin with this mess? Well, in this case, let's talk about what doesn't work here, I guess. I'm again going to tell you very publicly, I know it's not a good movie. It's a fun movie. But even when I watched it back in the day, I can't help but ruminate back on how out of fashion and how un-PC both its jokes and its characterizations were even for the day, let alone when you look at it now. I mean, seriously, as a character in... 1985, Alan Quatermain was over a hundred years old, and while the first film was sort of an attempt to try to paint him as this tongue-in-cheek quip machine that would go out of his way to have, you know, funny sayings and interesting action, honestly, the majority of the characters who were white in the film were meant to be buffoons. And yet it didn't make up for the fact that it doubled down on some really bad and some really tired ethnic stereotype tropes, especially when it came to African and Middle Eastern characters, making them all out to be crooks, slavers, or worse, cannibals. The Lost City of Gold repeats those tropes in spades, but then it ratchets it up into a further way and adds to the hink by including the concept that there's this long-lost African tribe of white Phoenicians who all along built this fabulous city out in the middle of nowhere in Africa in spite of all of the other local natives. It's downright insulting. Now, I do think it's rather funny. The only two ways that Quatermain seems to solve his problems are by way of shooting it with a gun, as we see with him removing the puzzle locks and the stalactites, or by using dynamite to blow away obstacles in very short order. His skills really aren't very obvious here. Now, I'll give you this. I like Richard Chamberlain, and for the record, really, I do. I'm happy to say I got to go see him on stage in Chicago when he took over for the role of King Arthur from Tim Curry when he did the Monty Python's musical comedy Spamalot. He's an excellent actor. I like him. But I'll say at the same time here, and I've said it then and I'll say it now, he is good looking, he is earnest, but he doesn't seem that comfortable with being actually funny. All of those one-liners he's trying to do and all of those asides, in both of these films, they come off as being kind of stale and worn. Even as he tries to be charming and glib, it makes the attempt feel kind of painful. And I actually feel bad for him, because it leaves you with lines like this. You really like these people, don't you? Well, look around, Q. These people have lived together in peace for centuries. Where can you find this in the modern world? Cleveland? There you go. Rachel. 
Robert Donner, who for the record I do very much love, is giving a rather terribly insulting performance here in brownface, doing his, well, best worst impression of an Indian holy man who at his core is a selfish coward, and who has some... and who, as some have commented on through the years, has made characterizations such as the Simpsons character Apu by Hank Azaria look downright marvelous, especially when we compare it to what we get here with Donner. That becomes wholesome and almost authentic. Now, the greatest waste, I would say, with casting has to come with James Earl Jones. He is marvelous as the character Umslopogaz, don't get me wrong. And that character is really cool on paper, especially when you read about it. Like, wandering around with the axe, can block spears, he's just a badass no matter what. Yeah, yeah, all good. But the problem really comes from where you have this marvelous thespian with a deep, rich, baritone voice... And you cast him in a role where he spends the majority of his time staring angrily or grunting in disapproval. That's such a waste of talent. You have James Earl Jones here. Pay him to talk. He wants to speak. This is his time to shine. Wars of Galpora. They swore with nice work. For a while I thought we'd end up in Cleveland. Proof that only a fool questions the wisdom of Swarma. Proof that even a blind monkey sometimes finds a banana. So the flip side, what does work for this film? Well, I gotta tell you, Henry Silva. Rocking out hard to his amazing run at playing villains throughout the 70s and 80s. If you recall, he showed up in the great Megaforce. I mean, how can you go wrong there? Silva gets to chew the scenery here all while looking crazed, sporting a massive dew with some gold lion armor and a general level of brutal insanity. Watching him cackle like a madman as he turns slaves into the unwilling gold statues that he so loves as he dips them into a molten pit. It's such a strange and fun scene. And again, I'm trying to emphasize fun because yes what's going on is indeed horrific but silva is so nutty and over the top with his performance that you can't help laugh at the comically absurd level of villainy we get to see here from him does the film work itself well i'm gonna tell you no no it doesn't it's not as good as the film that came before it but it does hold a place as being yet another cookie cutter adventure film that is cranked out by canon at the time honestly i think when you take into account that the theme was written by jerry goldsmith for king solomon's minds yes when you hear it play it's catchy but the fact that this movie replays that trumpet riff ad nauseum it makes most people start to get a bit twitchy when they watch it and they hear it for the 20th time in a less than 30 minute period a lesson that could have been taken here is less is indeed more So I can hear you out there. Chris, how was Alan Quatermain and the Lost City of Gold received? Not well. Critically, 
Well, it got savaged. Variety's lore commented that the screenplay has a back-of-the-envelope plotline and an anachronistic joke about Cleveland. And then it cuts to the quick, calling the acting of the film embarrassing, ranging from Chamberlain's unfunny tongue-in-cheek delivery to Stone's hysterical approach, to Henry Silva in a fright wig, noting that Donner's entire routine went out with Gunga Din, and then he takes a swipe at Cassandra Peterson for good measure, even though he freely admits he rationalizes she has no dialogue. I think some of that is warranted, and some of that is not. Particularly the Peterson stuff. You don't attack people that don't give a bad performance. That's just rude. Now, Tom Matthews from Box Office opened up with, Like it or not, Quatermain's back. And when he saw it on a Saturday afternoon, the larger-than-he-expected audience did not seem to be enjoying themselves when he watched it with them. He points out that the plot itself is hopelessly silly. The special effects range from being pathetic to passable, and the acting is consistently deadened, commenting particularly on the casting of James Earl Jones, noting that a man who is so renowned for his powerful voice is just put in a role where he only has to nod and grunt. Rob Salem of the Toronto Star didn't mince his own words either. After about 10 minutes of watching Richard Chamberlain's stiff, awkward attempt to be a wise-cracking hero, you'll want to give Harrison Ford an after-the-fact Oscar for Indiana Jones. While she herself got some details wrong, Johanna Stenmetz of the Chicago Tribune warned that movie fans who do relish a celluloid schlock encounter should rush to catch the lost city of gold before it dies a hasty but inevitable death at the box office. This is some grade A mediocrity, a tongue-in-cheek adventure of a film that doesn't even succeed in spoofing itself. Honestly, though, in the end, it was the audience themselves. They voted with their feet. The Lost City of Gold opened on January 30th, 1987 to a rather stunning lack of interest, with some saying they had already been fooled once by the King Solomon's Mines outing. After four weeks of being available to the public for viewing, Cannon would end up yanking it from the theaters, having it earn only $3.8 million against its $13 million budget. The film would quickly be relegated as a rental and a filler of deep cable. For her part, Sharon Stone was nominated for a Razzie for the Worst Actress, many clearly not appreciating her hysterical screaming for comedic effect. Still, like many films of the time, it did develop a cult following of its own. And while he didn't have the greatest memories of working on the story at the time, Richard Chamberlain did go back and state that he liked playing the character for people who would stop to give him the time of day. So much so that when Menahem Golan started kicking around bringing the character of Alan Quatermain back in the early 2010s, especially since Sean Connery had taken a crack at playing an aged version of the character in 2003's adaptation of Alan Moore's The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. 
he felt the time was indeed right. Golan had begun to work on a very belated sequel, which would have utilized a completely new story for Quartermain, separating it from the actual source books, penned by Golan, and dealing with a story that put the adventurer having to save his daughter from a bunch of Chinese treasure hunters. You know, this was probably going to get very racially insensitive, being what it was. Tentatively titled Alan Quartermain and the Jewel of the East, Golan had gotten Chamberlain to agree to sign on to return to the character. But alas, he died in 2014 before he could get further funding together to get the picture started. So, all in all, it's probably for the best. Still... By 1986, due to various losses and questionable accounting practices, the American Security and Exchange Commission started to investigate Canon over its, well, let's call them loose accounting practices when it came to how it traded its stocks publicly. You see, Canon had made a habit of reporting that the company would still be completely in the black and up-to-date with its various expenditures, showing that marketing its films absolutely took zero losses at the box office and gave even films that had tanked a healthy and robust background, at least if you looked at their books. Because if you were to dig in, it would show that they made a killing by selling off the film on a foreign market, but it wouldn't take into account what they actually had earned domestically. Even during this investigation, Menahem Golan was convinced that he could simply spend his way out of a problem, downplaying the government involvement in looking at his books and going on to make an even larger tactical error that would end up kicking off what would be the nightmare year of 1987, when all of Cannon's investments seemingly backfired right in their faces where they agreed to shell out a massive amount of money to hire Sylvester Stallone to be in their next touted box office release. But that itself is going to have to be a story for next week, when we delve into Stallone, Golan, and what came from making Over the Top, causing a heartache for this studio. version of Alan Quatermain and the Lost City of Gold screened here at the LSCE was the 2015 multi-format release put out by the good folks at Olive Pictures. While the Blu-ray itself comes rather bare bones, you at least get the original theatrical trailer of the film, and all of this could be yours for $19.26 on Amazon.com. But, I understand, if that's too rich for your blood, you could always get a copy of everything on DVD for the lesser price of $17.99, which I would argue with you is not too bad of a deal. Now, remember folks, we don't get anything here at the LSCE for telling you where we think you should purchase your physical media. We just think in this day and age, it's ever so important to continue to support such physical offerings that when these fine companies who own the rights to these wonderful, wonderful pictures keep releasing the content that we all know and love, that really, that's the important part. 
And at the end of the day, isn't it what makes you happy? Getting the things that you know and love? Besides, Alan Quartermain is such a silly, misguided, and weird bit of entertaining, adventuring fluff. How could you pass on such a ridiculous bauble? You can't. I know it. So, that said, what are you waiting for? Get out there and get yourself a copy of Alan Quartermain and the Lost City of Gold today. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you so much for joining us. We do hope you'll be back next week, and indeed all summer long, as we run through some of our favorite canon films brought to you over the years. If you like what we're doing here, that would be the LSCE Dachshunds and myself, please give us a favorable review on Apple Podcasts, or hit that subscribe button, or hey, just do that wherever you're listening to us on. Did you leave us a fun review? Hell, I'll read it here and just give you a shout out on the show. Think of it as my way of saying thank you for recognizing our love of cinema. Please swing by, check out our website, lscep.com, where we have articles, episode links, and other comics for you to peruse. If you have recently... We've recently been added to Stitcher, so you can find us there and give us a spin if you like. I'm proud to say, too, that we are on Amazon Music, so if you have an account, simply say, Hey, Alexa, play I Saw It on Linden Street today. We're also featured on Good Pods and Podchaser. That's a podcast database for listeners and creators alike. Find us there. Give us a review if you could, please, and just understand that those increased likes helps the marvelous algorithm make us all the more searchable and then we can share more of these films with more people and you want to do that don't you of course you do we of course want to hear from you so please send an email or an audio clip to linden street cinema experience theater at gmail.com you love social media? Well, we use it here. You can follow us on at LSCEP on Instagram and on Twitter and find us at LSCE underscore podcast there. If you'd like to be even more personable or you wish to continue a segment, if you'd like to be even more personable or wish to contribute a segment in the sidecar, please send us an audio message by way of Anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. So... Until next time, we'll tell you this to your face. Take it easy out there. Wash your hands. Wear a mask. Please, and most importantly, stay healthy. And remember, folks, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there, everybody. And now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night. Good night.